Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If Ted Kennedy was nervous about anything on the morning of July 19, 1969, he certainly didn't show it. At around 8 a.m., shortly before his black Oldsmobile was found upside down in a tidal pond just off the Dyke Bridge, he was on the porch of the Shiretown Inn in Edgartown, Massachusetts. There he chatted with friends Ross Richards and his wife Marilyn about the sailboat regatta that had taken place the day before. Ross had won the race. Ted had come in ninth. They discussed the possibility of eating breakfast together, and Ted mentioned what a beautiful day it was. Marilyn Richards always wondered why Ted was so insistent on the three of them going to breakfast. From the way it was told was it it seemed the start of almost an alibi. That's Marilyn's son, Spencer Richards. My mom said that when she finally came out, because he was pretty insistent, that the senator was well-dressed, shaven, looked very well-rested, you know, like nothing had happened at all that night, you know, like almost to the point where he went home, went to bed, got a good night's sleep and, you know, was up early and, you know, let's go. I mean, when it's explained to me and the very first time I heard the story, it was totally you were like, it was a setup. You were being set up to be some kind of alibi, and he was going to try to get away with it. But an alibi for what? What happened the night Mary Jo Kopechny died? Why is it still such a mystery nearly 50 years later? On the last episode of Cover Up. They never had those last moments of their daughter's life from anybody. Why would another woman's pocketbook be in that car? He said, that's the exact car I saw last night heading down the Dyke Bridge Road, running away from me. When I saw it, I went to offer help because they looked as though they were lost, and it went down the Dyke Bridge Road at a high rate of speed. I was standing there watching Dr. Mills as he pressed on Mary Jo's chest cavity, and water was flowing out of her nose and her mouth, and me with my weak stomach, I was throwing up at the scene. I've never seen anybody that had drowned before. Only thing that came out was a few bubbles. I remember seeing the striations on her fingernails and the tips of her fingers where she had actually been clawing as she died. I had that feeling today. I had that feeling then that uh, we can't make a big deal out of it, even if it is a major incident. I never should have let him leave the island, but I thought I would see him again. I really did. I guess I was for screwed on that one. I'm Liz McNeil, and this is Cover Up. The festivities began with the annual Edgartown Regatta, a weekend of sunbathing, boat races, and late-night parties. Ted raced his sailboat, the Victoria, as he did every year. And afterwards, he hosted a reunion party for six women who had worked for his brother, Bobby. They were known as the Boiler Room Girls, named for the windowless office in which they worked researching delegates during RFK's presidential campaign. 
Mary Jo Kopechny was one of the boiler room girls, along with Rosemary Keough. She's the woman whose purse was found in Ted's car after the crash. The others were Susan Tannenbaum, Esther Newberg, and two sisters, Nancy and Mary Ellen Lyons. In addition to the six women were six men, Ted Kennedy, his cousin Joe Gargan, Paul Markham, the U.S. attorney who would accompany Ted the next morning to the police station to report the accident, and two men who worked for Bobby's campaign, Ray La Rosa and Charlie Treader, as well as Ted's driver, Jack Crimmins. Ted's wife, Joan Kennedy, then pregnant with their fourth child, did not attend. Some of the men were told to leave the wives at home, which led to a few of them turning down the invitation. Much was made of the fact that the six men were married, except for Ted's driver, and the women were single, but any insinuation of inappropriate behavior was denied by those in attendance. The reunion party was held on the island of Chappaquiddick. It's a small island separated by a split of water from Edgartown, a picturesque harbor town in Martha's Vineyard. One island off another island. Just 18 square miles, beautiful, rugged, remote. With Edgartown hotels booked for the regatta, it was the only place where Joe Gargan was able to find a rental. There he found a small two-bedroom home known as the Lawrence Cottage, just a two-minute ferry ride away. The name Chappaquiddick comes from the Native American word Chepiaquidne, meaning separated island. And when you think about it, what happened on the night of July 18, 1969, when Ted Kennedy's car crashed off a narrow wooden bridge, leaving his passenger Mary Jo Kopechny to die, was all because it was a separate island. That's how Ted's cousin, Joe Gargan, saw it. He's the one who planned the party. The whole problem about this case was that little island, he told Leo Damore, the author of Senatorial Privilege, the definitive book on the case. This little split of water that the ferry goes back and forth is the thing that messed the whole situation up. If that was a bridge instead of a ferry landing, you would have driven across and been in Edgartown in a matter of 30 seconds more. And now you're there, a block from the police station, discussing what you're going to do, and you get out of the car and walk over. There wasn't any walking over unless he was Christ and he could walk across the water. He was Ted Kennedy, the youngest child of America's most powerful political dynasty. And his cousin, Joe Gargan, was his advance man, his fixer. Some even dismissively called him his errand boy. Ted called him Joey. Joe Gargan's mother, Agnes, was one of Rose Kennedy's younger sisters. After his mother died when he was six years old, Joe began spending summers with the Kennedys. Just two years older than Teddy, he was more adept at sports than his chubby cousin. He became his playmate, his confidant, and his protector. As they always said, Joey will fix it, just like he tried to do that weekend in Martha's Vineyard. Gargan was in charge of the weekend activities. It was he who invited the guests to the reunion party, who bought the food and cooked the steaks on the grill. It was Gargan, along with Paul Markham, who Ted summoned to the water to rescue Mary Jo after his car went off the bridge. And it was Gargan who, 14 years later, told author Leo Damore that Ted asked him to lie about what happened that night. In the last episode, I mentioned a local by the name of Jerry Grant. He's 71, knows everyone in town, and built the first ferry between Edgartown and Chappaquiddick. Back in 1969, he was 22 years old, and it cost just 50 cents to make the trip. When we met last year, he took me on the ferry and described the night he took Ted Kennedy over to Chappaquiddick. 
Grant was just starting his shift when he noticed Ted on the ferry that evening. Well, it operated uh, in the summertime. It operated from uh, 7 in the morning until midnight. And anything after that was a special call and and a different price. But other than that, it just ran steady for those hours. Uh, we changed shifts. Uh, I had uh, two or three captains working for me, and I was, I was coming on for my shift. And uh, the captain that got off, got off that shift there, he said, "You know, that's uh, as Ted Kennedy up there on the, the forward part of the uh, the ferry." And I said, "Okay, fine, no, no big deal." Anyways, I took him to Chappaquiddick, and uh, as far as I know. Uh, I never brought him back from Chapel Critic. What we know about the party that followed is based on the inquest testimony, a 775-page record of the official investigation into the accident, and for most of the guests, the only time they ever spoke about the night Mary Jo died. Ted was the first to arrive at the Lawrence Cottage around 7.30 p.m. Jack Crimmins drove him over from the ferry in Ted's Oldsmobile, Within the next hour, the rest of the party arrived. Joe Gargan was in charge of the menu, making the cheese and sausage hors d'oeuvres and cooking the steaks. The cocktails flowed. Before the weekend, Crimmins had picked up a large supply of alcohol in Boston. Three half gallons of vodka, four-fifths of scotch, two bottles of rum, and a couple cases of beer. Gargan, who drank Coca-Cola that night, and another party guest, Ray La Rosa, were the only ones who didn't drink. In their inquest testimony, the guests denied any heavy drinking. But Gargan later told Leo Damore, everyone was a little bit bombed. They spent the night in the cramped cottage, reminiscing about Bobby's campaign and dancing to music on a Bell & Howell transistor radio. Ted drank at least two rum and cokes, his drink of choice at the party. He also testified to sharing two beers with his two-man crew during the race, and then less than a quarter of one at a celebration party after the regatta. Then about a third of beer at his hotel before he went over to Chappaquiddick. But author Leo Damore later learned that Ted had consumed at least three cocktails at the celebration party before heading over to Chappaquiddick. Specifically, according to Stan Moore, another regatta participant, Ted had, quote, three rum and cokes in about 20 minutes, but he wasn't laced or anything, end quote. Ted, as we mentioned in the last episode, was never given an alcohol test since he appeared at the police station 10 hours after the crash, and the police chief had no idea that a party had taken place beforehand. But Mary Jo was given a test post-mortem, which revealed her blood alcohol as 0.09%. The party guests claimed to not know what or how much Mary Jo drank that night. And for someone of Mary Jo's size, it was the equivalent of between three to five drinks within an hour before her death. More if you measure over a longer period of time. It's a perplexing detail, since everyone we spoke to said Mary Jo was not a drinker and would have one cocktail at most at a party. To this day, it's not clear why Mary Jo left the party early. Ted's driver, Jack Crimmins, testified she wasn't feeling well, that she had gotten too much sun earlier that day while sunbathing. And when Ted told Mary Jo he was leaving the party to return to his hotel in Edgartown, he testified that she asked him to drop her off at her hotel. Ted then got the keys to his car from Crimmins and headed out the front door with Mary Jo. It was 11.15 p.m. Well, that's one version of what happened. 
The road from the Lawrence Cottage to the Chappaquiddick Ferry Landing is just under three miles. Ted testified he was on his way to the ferry, which shut down at midnight. But before you get to the ferry, there's a T in the road. And at the T, a left on the paved road takes you to the ferry landing. And a hard right takes you onto a bumpy dirt path towards the Dyke Bridge and East Beach beyond. Ted made a right towards the beach in the opposite direction of the ferry landing. The problem is almost no one, including the judge who later presided over the official inquest, believed Ted intended to go to the ferry. 50 years later, that hasn't changed. My producer, Christina, and I made the same drive earlier this year. When we made the right turn towards the Dyke Bridge, we immediately felt the road change. It was no longer paved, but a dirt road full of potholes and ditches. There's no mistaking one road for the other. Locals say it hasn't changed much since 1969. Of course, we don't know what Senator Kennedy intended when he made the right turn towards the bridge. We do know that Ted had been on the road earlier that day when Jack Crimmins had taken him to go for a swim on East Beach. Tom Smith was living with his family at the time on Dyke Road, 200 yards from the bridge. It's a dirt road with um, a lot of ruts. It still has kind of the washboard uh, thing today. It's still not paved today. I find it hard for someone not to, soon after they made the turn, realize that they were going the wrong way. Very difficult to believe. And this is where all the questions began. Did the senator make a wrong turn? Or did he intend to go to the beach? Did he leave at 11.15? Or later that night? Or did something else happen that night that might explain what happened next? This brings us back to Huck Look. He's the deputy sheriff who saw Ted's car that night. And he recognized Ted's Oldsmobile when he stopped by the crash site the next morning. He had seen the senator's car between 12.40 and 12.45 a.m., 90 minutes after Ted said he'd gone over the bridge. As I said in the last episode, when I began my research last fall, I met with a source involved with the investigation, and he told me, either you believe Ted Kennedy or you believe Huck Look. Up until his death in 2011, Huck Look never changed his story. And no matter who we spoke to in Martha's Vineyard, the response was the same. Huck Look was a stand-up guy. For 27 years, Look was sheriff of Dukes County, which encompasses seven towns. Huck was a man of few words, but he did confide to his friend Mason Buddy, who worked at a local radio station, what he had seen that night. In his role as deputy sheriff on Martha's Vineyard, on the night of uh, July, when the accident occurred, he was working a dance at the Egertown Yacht Club. And that dance uh, ended at 12.30, uh, the night of the 19th of July. And I think, uh, as I remember it, uh, the Yacht Club launch took him uh, across the uh, Egertown Harbor from Egertown over to Chappaquiddick, where Huck lived and where his car was parked. Evidently, according to Huck, he got into his car and started driving down Chappaquiddick Road. He was coming down the road, he said, around uh, 12.30, 12.40 that early morning of the 19th, when another car was coming toward him with bright lights, and nothing was thought about it at that instant. But as Huck uh, said, he looked into his rearview mirror and saw that the car had stopped. Uh, Huck thought that the car was in some difficulty or that the driver was uh, seeking uh, directions or what have you. He parked his car 
and started to walk back towards uh, the car in question. And Huck said that he thought that whoever was driving the car saw that he was wearing a police officer's uniform, so to speak. And before Huck could uh, get to the car, the car just took off down uh, what is known as Dyke Road. So there was no communication between Huck and the driver at that point. And Huck got back in his car and um, drove home. In his inquest testimony, Luke said the car was approximately 35 feet away when it passed directly in front of him. He noticed a male driver with a female in the passenger seat. There was an outline of something in the back seat he couldn't make out. Maybe a handbag or a coat. Maybe a third person. He wasn't sure. Luke was the one witness who Kennedy's legal team feared the most. In this interview with radio host Art Bell, author Leo Damore gives his take on why. He's had a lot to drink. He's in a car with a young woman he isn't married to. Very late at night, he does not want, obviously, to get pinched for drunk driving. The only area of escape is to go down that dirt road in order to avoid confrontation with a person he perceives to be a police officer. And he goes down that road at a high rate of speed. He probably is looking in his rearview mirror in order to see if this guy who he perceives to be a cop is coming after him. He probably doesn't even see the bridge. Huck Look never liked being thrust into the spotlight as the man who contradicted Ted Kennedy. But as Mason Buddy explains, Look would never tell a lie. Well, here we are. Huck, who I believe never told an untruth in his life, is saying that Kennedy or two people were driving Kennedy's car an hour and a half later that night. Uh, so the accident could not have occurred at the time Kennedy claimed that the accident occurred. I mean, I think Huck is the type of person, I mean, as a matter of fact, I know Huck is the type of person who had anyone pressured him, offered him anything, said, you got to do this, Huck would have uh, immediately rebelled at any type of coercion in that regard. It's just the type of guy he is, was, will be. Very honorable, truthful person. Here's Leslie Look. Huck Look's daughter-in-law. Huck was as upstanding as you could get in the, in this position and really respected government, respected the fact that he had earned that position as sheriff and took it very seriously, very seriously. I mean, if his got, kids got in trouble, you know, they stayed there. <laughs> you know, and I res- always respected that too. He was very upstanding in that he cared about people. He was a gentleman. He would offer to help. Um, I mean, I'd seen it with my own eyes when I was with him. Uh, And so 60 Minutes called him up and offered him um, a million dollars to tell his story. And he said no. On the morning of July 25th, 1969, one week after the accident, Ted Kennedy walked into the Edgartown courthouse with his brother-in-law, Stephen Smith, and his pregnant wife, Joan. He pleaded guilty to a single count of leaving the scene of an accident and received a two-month suspended jail sentence and a one-year suspension on his driver's license. Police Chief Jim Arena was there that day. He seemed okay. I served him a summons forthwith, and his wife was there with him. God bless her. And uh, the courtroom was filled with representatives of the press. He pleaded guilty, and I read the statement, and the judge made some comment at the end about pressuring or anything like that or something like that. 
And uh, I said, no, it was over and done with. And at the end, there were microphones set up outside and uh, somebody from the courtroom had to go out there and speak. Ended up being me. A crowd of 400, locals, vacationers, and press from around the world had gathered outside to hear Chief Arena deliver the announcement. My investigation is completed. Mr. Steele and I uh, will be prepared to go into the hearing and uh, we'll just present our facts. And then uh, if the complaint is issued, then a summons will be issued for the senator and then we have to go to court. That evening, all three television networks reserved 15 minutes of airtime for the broadcast of Ted Kennedy's address about Chappaquiddick. It was the first and only time the senator would describe in detail what happened. The speech, along with his testimony at the inquest six months later, are the fullest accounts, in his words, of what occurred that night. My fellow citizens, I have requested this opportunity to talk to the people of Massachusetts about the tragedy which happened last Friday evening. Ted delivered the speech from the library of his family's Hyannisport compound. He sat behind a desk that was elevated by a stack of books under each table leg to allow the camera to shoot at eye level, an effort to better connect with viewers at home. The address, however, was written by a different Ted, JFK speechwriter and advisor Ted Sorensen, the man who had written some of JFK's most memorable words. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The man who wrote the script of how JFK's 1,000 days in office would always be remembered, was now in charge of presenting Ted's version of Chappaquiddick to the American public. Ted had spent the week following the accident secluded in the family compound, surrounded by lawyers and advisors who were there to figure out a response to the growing scandal. In addition to Ted Sorensen, were Robert McNamara, former defense secretary to JFK, another speechwriter, Richard Goodwin, and Burke Marshall, the former assistant attorney general under RFK among others. They had all gathered in Rose Kennedy's formal dining room to deal with the growing crisis and dictate the narrative which Ted would convey in the televised address. It was all managed by Stephen Smith, the husband of Ted's sister, Jean Kennedy Smith, who had called in the family's most trusted advisors. It was a gathering that some likened to the handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But this time, the crisis was how to save Ted's political career. Little over one mile away, the car that I was driving on an unlit road went off a narrow bridge, which had no guardrails and was built on the left angle to the road. The car overturned in a deep pond and immediately filled with water. I remember thinking as the cold water rushed in around my head that I was for certain drowning. Then water entered my lungs and I actually felt the sensation of drowning. But somehow I struggled to the surface alive. I made immediate and repeated efforts to save Mary Jo by diving into the strong and murky current, but succeeded only in increasing my state of utter exhaustion and alarm. My conduct and conversations during the next several hours to the extent that I can remember them, make no sense to me at all. I regard as indefensible the 
the fact that I did not report the accident to the police immediately. The speech was vague on the details, such as how he got out of the car and the reasons for the 10-hour delay. But Ted gave a few more details about the accident at the inquest. That's when he testified about the moment the car had gone over the bridge. He felt movement from Mary Jo next to him as they were going off the bridge, perhaps hitting or kicking, he said. The car hit the water, and he realized he was upside down. He reached for the door handle. It wasn't budging. He felt for the window and said it was closed. However, when the car was found, Ted's window was rolled down. Once he had escaped from the Oldsmobile, Ted testified he began, quote, walking, trotting, jogging, stumbling, back to the Lawrence Cottage. The route was dark. There were three places where he could have asked for help, but he did not. The first was the Dyke House, where Sylvia Malm and her family lived. I mentioned them briefly in the last episode, as the house where the two fishermen ran for help after finding Ted Kennedy's car in the water the next morning. The Malms have rarely spoken about that night. In their statement to police, Sylvia Malm and her daughter said they had heard a car going fairly fast on Dyke Road, sometime before or close to midnight. But strangely enough, neither Mrs. Malm nor her daughter ever heard a car hit the water. After the Dyke House was another house, 200 yards from the bridge, owned by the Smith family. Tom Smith, who you recently heard, is now an Edgartown police officer. He was just four years old in 1969 and remembers that the light was on in his bedroom that night. I was four years old at the time, and I was afraid to sleep with the lights out. So my bedroom that I shared with a sibling was on the the roadside, if you will. So the, the thought is that anybody passing the house would have seen a light on. Whoever was involved in this had to go buy a house with a light on. And it's it's always been a question in my mind why somebody wouldn't stop with a house with a light on and ask to use the phone if there were such, a, uh, such an incident that, that occurred. There was also a fire station diagonally across the street from the Lawrence Cottage where the party was taking place. Firehouse sits on Chappaquiddick sits where it did in those days. It was within ear and eye shot of the firehouse, but you got to remember, like the police departments, it wasn't manned. Um, I, I believe there, there was a pull box, so even if every phone on the on the Chappaquiddick went out, I believe he, he could have pulled a fire alarm at the fire station, which would have summoned some sort of assistance. But that the Chappie firehouse was within eyesight of the cottage. In those days, there would have been a uh, a horn on top of the fire station and it's yeah like a foghorn type thing so the the volunteers the volunteer fire department so they would hear the horn they would then respond to the fire station and had not even thought of that but it's right there that the, the fire station is right there by the cottage instead ted returned to the lawrence cottage once there he climbed in the back of joe gargan's rental car and called out to ray la rosa who was sitting outside to go get gargan who in turn got paul markham There's been a terrible accident, Ted told them. The car's gone off the bridge down by the beach, and Mary Jo is in it. Instead of looking directly for a telephone after lying exhausted in the grass for an undetermined time, I walked back to the cottage where the party was being held and requested the help of two friends, my cousin Joseph Gargan and Paul Markham, and directed them to return immediately to the scene with me. This was sometime after midnight. 
in order to undertake a new effort to dive down and locate Miss Kopechny. Their strenuous efforts undertaken at some risk to their own lives also prove futile. Joe Gargan remembered it differently. Here's author Leo Damore explaining how Gargan told him what happened. And it is Joe Gargan who, who, who returns in haste to the scene of the accident. He and Paul Markham get out of the car, take off all their clothes, get into the pond, and for a half an hour to 45 minutes, struggle to try to get Mary Jo Kopechny out of that car. In the meantime, this, uh, Mr. Kennedy is up on the bridge, on his back, with his hands behind his head, uh, looking up into the sky, rocking back and forth, and saying over and over again, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? After the rescue efforts have failed, Joe Gargan and Paul Morgan get out of the water, but they put their clothes back on, they get back into the car and start heading over to the ferry landing. And it is at this time, on the way to the landing and at the landing, that Joe Gargan repeatedly is urging Ted Kennedy to report the accident over and over again. He's saying, we've got to report this. We've got to report it right now. But according to Joe Gargan, Ted had another idea. Clearly, Mr. Kennedy does not want to report the accident. Ultimately, he proposes a hypothetical. And that is, why couldn't Mary Jo have been driving the car? Why couldn't she have dropped me off at the cottage and taken the car herself in order to return to Edgartown, made a wrong turn, and had the accident? And he proposes returning to the party cottage in order to establish this, hang around another 10 or 15 minutes. Then he leaves his way back to Edgartown to his hotel room and after an hour or two after he has established that he's in his hotel Joe Gargan is to conspire to not only learn about the accident but more importantly to report it to the police as having happened after Ted Kennedy left the party Leo DeMore said Gargan rejected the idea outright Joe Gargan actually said to me our rescue efforts had completely altered the accident situation we had returned to the scene of the accident this is an extremely public place. There was the lights of the car. We were making a lot of noise. We were hollering back and forth. This is a very public area. God only knows how many people are going to come forward the next day to say, yeah, I saw Ted Kennedy and two other guys down at Dyson's Bridge. And as he says to him, that won't work. You can be placed at the scene of the accident. In addition to that, no one knows Mary Jo Kopechny well enough to know whether she even knows how to drive a car or has a license. But more importantly, Joe Gargan and Paul Markham are both lawyers. If they make an inaccurate and misleading report of a fatal accident to the police and get caught, they could lose their ticket, as Mr. Uh, Mr. Gargan told me. They could lose their license to practice law. For all of these reasons, Mr. Gargan refuses to go along with this proposed scenario. Repeatedly says, we've got to report the accident, we've got to report it now, until Mr. Kennedy loses his temper and says, all right, Joe, all right, Joe, I'm tired of listening to you. I'll take care of it. You go back to the cottage. Don't tell the girls anything about the accident. I'll take care of it. He gets out of the car, jumps into the water, and swims across about 150 yards over to Edgartown. As Ted later testified, a lot of different thoughts came into my mind at that time about how I was going to really be able to call Mrs. Kopechny at some time in the middle of the night to tell her that her daughter was drowned. 
to be able to call my own mother and my own father, relate it to them, my wife and I even. Even though I knew Mary Jo Kopechny was dead and believed firmly that she was in the back of that car, I willed that she remained alive. Hi, this is Christina Everett, one of the producers of Cover Up. I want to take a quick minute to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Casper. The work on this podcast has been exhausting, to say the least. Between the long hours spent at the office researching and reporting on the case, to the traveling that we've done to interview our subjects, there's nothing better than the feeling of coming home and lying down on a good mattress. And Casper doesn't just have any mattresses. Their products are designed to mimic the curve of a human body, which gives you that supportive comfort you need for a good night's sleep. Here's how they do it. The mattresses consist of multiple supportive memory foams that have the right amount of both sink and bounce. And here's something that's really important to me, especially in New York during a summer. Casper's mattresses have a breathable design that will help you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. The prices for these mattresses are affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells it directly to you. And if your schedule is as busy as mine, you'll love that Casper delivers right to your door and offers free returns in the U.S. and Canada if you're not completely satisfied. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So how do you get the rest you deserve? Listeners of CoverUp can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash coverup and using coverup at checkout. Don't lose out on this offer. That's casper.com slash coverup and use coverup at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Ted wasn't the only person at the ferry landing at that hour. Jerry Grant, the ferry operator from earlier that evening, was still on the Edgartown side in full view of the channel until 2 a.m. Had Ted swam the short distance between the two islands, Grant would have seen him. He didn't, nor did he see a car pull up to the landing on Chappaquiddick, where anyone could have called for the ferry to take them back to town, even after hours. I was right on the dock. You could see lights for three-quarters of a mile up the road if somebody was coming down the road with a vehicle to bring him down to the ferry, or he had to come, he didn't walk down, we know that. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, like I say, it just, the time element is not, don't make any sense at all. It was, it was one of them nights, it was flat ass calm out there. You know, it was hot, muggy. There wasn't a ripple in the water. Adding to the mystery is a strange encounter that another family had on the water that night, the Baloo's. My name is Christy Ballou, and my father, Todd Ballou, was actually in Edgartown Harbor on the night that they were there um, for the regatta, and he was going back to his boat. As I recall, he saw a small boat coming from Tepaquetic and going past where their boat, they were moored right in the harbor, Edgartown Harbor. He was coming back from dinner party and had dropped his shoe in the water. And so he was trying to figure out what to do about that when he was, when he heard this other boat um, or these people that he thought it was very strange because it was so late. It was like one thirty or two o'clock in the morning and small boat with lights that were dimmed or they had turned the lights off on the boat and he heard people, I mean, I think it was three people that he says he heard and that they were 
you know, whispering, but it was enough for him to stop and wonder what they were doing and then recall it the next day when he heard the story of what had happened at Chappaquiddick. So he thought that they were definitely connected. Oddly enough, after Mr. Ballou's story appeared in the New Bedford Standard Times newspaper, he was never questioned by the police. To this day, the family wonders if their strange encounter was related to the Chappaquiddick accident. And it's one of the reasons why people wonder if Ted had gotten across the channel some other way. Another reason is the disappearance of Roddy Hoare's boat. His sister, Ann Floyd, who lives nearby on Chappaquiddick, told us the story of how Roddy's boat went missing. It's not uncommon if the rowboat's down there that somebody will need to get back on the other side as, you know, once the ferry has stopped running. And typically what they do is they borrow a rowboat, then they go down first thing in the morning and put it back. My brothers had been moved and it hadn't been put back. So I don't know whether he took that or somebody else did. It was on the beach um, right next to the ferry slip. And uh, the next morning it was on the beach on the other side of the ferry slip. If anything, it's boats from the Edgartown side that get stolen and people roll home at night to Chappaquiddick and then they get up bright and early the next morning and take the boat back to Edgartown. Um, To go the other way from Chappaquiddick to Edgartown is highly unusual. Locals say it's not a difficult swim, but the fact that no one saw Ted on one of the busiest nights of the year and that he regularly wore a back brace for injuries stemming from an airplane crash years earlier created some doubt. Here's Jerry Grant. If he swam... He's by far not the first person to ever swim across there. I've swam across there as a kid. And Christ, half of Vegatown has probably swam across there. And then Christ, I had guys, they'd walk onto the ferry, pay me, and then dump their clothes off, jump off, swim across, and then somebody handed them their clothes on this side, the, the, the carpenters and the guys, you know, they were just, you know, it was a crazy time. It's not a lot of crazy things. Ted returned to his hotel sometime before two in the morning. He took off all his clothes and collapsed on the bed. But soon after, he appeared fully dressed on the hotel landing and asked the hotel's innkeeper for the time. He said he had misplaced his watch, and he complained about the noise coming from outside his room. It was 2.25 a.m. Strangely enough, when first questioned by police chief Arena, the same innkeeper said he had never seen Ted that night a discrepancy I was not able to clarify. But now, Ted had an alibi. Here's Leo Damore. He is going along with this proposed scenario that Mr. Gargan will not go along with on the assumption that after a couple of hours goes by and nobody turns up at the cottage, Mr. Gargan will have no choice but to do what he very plainly knows Mr. Kennedy wants him to do. The next morning, Ted appeared well-rested and eager to socialize. That morning, my dad had gone out to get the paper, and it was early morning, say, you know, 7.30-ish, maybe. That's Spencer Richards, who you heard at the beginning of the episode. 
His parents, Ross and Marilyn Richards, were in the hotel room next to Ted's. He said, you know, the senator had come up onto the porch, was talking to him very loudly, and pretty much um, wanted to go to breakfast and insisted that my mom come or at least come out to talk to him. And they were saying, you know, it was very odd that, you know, they they, they had a, a friendship, but not, it wasn't that great, you know, where we went to breakfast all the time kind of thing, you know. And, you know, my mom would say, you know, I was yelling out to him, you know, he's going, the sun, you know, Teddy wants to see you. And she was saying, well, I'm not dressed. I'm not coming out. And he was pretty insistent on it. And then in the middle of the conversation, Joe Gargan came rushing up on the deck to get him in kind of a loud way. And she said, you know, he was unshaven. His hair was awry. You know, he was wet, you know, very damp, um, like he had been up all night. Uh, The senator stepped away. They had words, um, not loudly, but you know, that they knew they were talking about something. And then the senator said he needed to go. Here's Leo DeMore again. And so this is a calculated posture. He is acting out in order to indicate to these uh, witnesses that he knows nothing about this accident. And I suppose he is preparing to act out shock and amazement about this accident. But assuming that Mr. Gargan has in some way taken care of the accident. Mr. Gargan, when he goes over there, is shocked by this tableau of Mr. Kennedy, shaved, dressed, completely relaxed, acting out for these people, and orders him into his room. And he says to him, what the hell is going on here? You were supposed to report the accident. And Mr. Kennedy said, I didn't report the accident. And Mr. Gargan said to him, oh, this is now worse than it was last night. We've got to report the accident. We've got to report it right now. Mr. Kennedy says, I'm going to say that Mary Jo was driving the car. And Joe Gargan again says, you can't say that because you can be placed at the scene of the accident. Come on, we've got to report this. And here's how Ted described that moment in his inquest testimony. I told them about my own thoughts and feelings as I swam across that channel and how I always willed that Mary Jo still lived, how I was hopeful even as that night went on and as I almost tossed and turned, paced that room and walked around the room that night, that somehow, when they arrived in the morning, that they were going to say that Mary Jo was still alive. I told them how I somehow believed that when the sun came up and it was a new morning, that what had happened the night before would not have happened and did not happen, and how I just couldn't gain the strength within me, the moral strength, to call Mrs. Kopechny at two o'clock in the morning and tell her that her daughter was dead. The details of what Ted Kennedy, Joe Gargan, and Paul Markham spoke about behind closed doors, we still don't know. However, according to Leo Damore's book, Senatorial Privilege, Ross Richards, Ted's boating friend in the adjacent hotel room, revealed another possible scenario during an interview with a state police detective. When asked by the detective if he thought Ted was finding out about the accident for the first time, Richards replied, it sure looked that way. All kinds of scrambled thoughts, all of them confused, some of them irrational, many of them which I cannot recall, and some of which I would not have seriously entertained under normal circumstances went through my mind during this period. 
They were reflected in the various inexplicable, inconsistent, and inconclusive things I said and did, including such questions as whether the girl might still be alive somewhere out of that immediate area, whether some awful curse did actually hang over all the Kennedys, whether there was some justifiable reason for me to doubt what had happened and to delay my report, whether somehow the awful weight of this incredible incident might in some way pass from my shoulders. I was overcome, I'm frank to say, by a jumble of emotions, grief, fear, doubt, exhaustion, panic, confusion, and shock. By way of explanation, Ted had brought up the question of a family curse. While explaining his missteps, he'd brought up the family ghosts. Not only the assassination of JFK in 1963, followed by the assassination of Bobby five years later, but also his older brother Joe Jr., who had died on a secret bombing mission in World War II in 1944, and his sister Kathleen Kick Kennedy, who had died in a plane crash in 1948. There was nothing in Ted's carefully prepared comments that was not in there for a reason, and its author no doubt understood that reminding us of the family's tremendous losses would evoke sympathy and compassion while explaining Ted's handling of what had happened. The tragic losses the Kennedy family had suffered were of a magnitude most of us could not ever imagine. But one has to wonder, what did they have to do with the 10-hour delay it took to report the accident? Years later, when discussing the speech, Joe Gargan, the man who had always protected his cousin Ted, told author Leo Damore, it was made up, all of it, including thoughts and emotions. On the next episode of Cover Up, Ted was regarded as the clown of the family, the guy, you know, the fat boy, the guy that couldn't uh, couldn't get it right, and that was uh, that was a burden to him. For Ted, you know, he betrayed his father. He wanted him to be these powerful figures. He felt that politics was that was the, was where power in America was going to be. He wanted his sons to be there, and that's what they were to do in the world, and that's what they did. He said to me, "I killed my father." I was hostage to the family code that no don't say anything about it anything you say it's disloyal it's against the family code and it doesn't matter whether it's in a private therapy session that psychiatrist could go out and tell somebody the impression they got was from him if you just just go along with this now and get through this and then we'll explain everything later and because they, they trusted him. Uh, they loved the Kennedys. Everyone did. When my Uncle Bobby was killed, it was like absolutely the floor dropped out for my father. You ever ask anyone, my dad was the happiest he ever was when he had his brother. Then his brother was killed. Boom. Over. Show over. Cover Up is a joint production by People Magazine and Cadence 13. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. To share your thoughts and theories on the case, you can join our Facebook group to continue the discussion. Just search Cover Up. For more, go to people.com slash cover up, or to reach us directly, email coverup at people.com.